If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you pray with me? We are having yet another please scream inside your heart moment, Holy One. This puts us somewhere around 2,718 of those said moments, if you're counting. Last month, an Oklahoma lawmaker proposed legislation that would allow parents to ban books in public schools and set a $10,000 bounty for each day a challenged book remains on library shelves. Then there's another Oklahoma lawmaker who wants to require the King James Version to be the primary text for Bible classes in public schools. And last week, the Oklahoma Secretary of Education gaslit teachers and school administrators after many had to move to virtual learning because of illness and staff shortages, which is not unrelated to our vaccination rate being well below the national average. All of it makes us angry and weepy, not to mention exhausted, confused, and anxious. And did we mention angry? Be with us, Holy One, as we work to remain faithful in caring for each other through this mess, committed as the author of Hebrews urged us to encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of us may be hardened. Hear our screams, O Lord, and wipe away our tears so that we can see clearly. Keep our hearts soft so that we never think of what's happening now as normal. We pray in the name of Jesus, who was a teacher too. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, 
What concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. She's known only as the mother of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Not one time does John call Mary by her name. And I know that this raging feminist congregation is ready to call out that absurdity. But to be fair, this is the plight of all parents, right? Have a baby, and all of a sudden, people forget that you have a name. It's an occupational hazard for parents. You're not Ben. You're Harvey's dad. You're not April. You're Emily's mom. And in this story, she isn't Mary. She's Jesus' mom. We can almost hear the affection in the phrase when we frame it this way, Jesus' mom. While he may not call her by name, John does open the story with Mary. She is the first character in the scene, with Jesus and the disciples sounding almost like an afterthought. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and the disciples had also been invited to the wedding. As theologian Gerard Sloyan notes, in an abrupt opening, John situates the mother of Jesus at the Cana wedding, then makes Jesus and his disciples appendages to her presence. It is as if she is the main character here, and Jesus is her supporting cast. And what an unexpected start to this story. But not unexpectedly, we do not learn much more about her. This can be said for many mothers who raised children who we quote and model our lives after now. The premise of the book by Anna Tubbs titled The Three Mothers addresses this very thing. Much has been written, says the book's teaser, about Bernice Baldwin's son, James, and Alberta King's son, Martin, and about Louise Little's son, Malcolm, but virtually nothing has been said about the extraordinary women who raised them, whose lives spanned Jim Crow, the Great Migration, the Civil Rights Movement, and the specific prejudices black women faced during these and many more pivotal, pivotal moments in American history. In The Three Mothers, author Anna Tubbs writes, while the disregard of black women's contributions is widespread and so extensive that it is unquantifiable, 
the women I honor here have been ignored differently. Ignored even though it should have been easy throughout history to see them, to at least wonder about them and to think about them. Ignored in ways that are blatantly obvious when the fame of their sons is considered. While the sons have been credited with the success of black resistance, the progression of black thought, and the survival of the black community, the three mothers who birthed and reared them have been erased. And the same could be said for Mary. In a lecture he delivered at the University of Massachusetts in 1995, Malcolm X's eldest brother, Wilfred, began by saying, what people don't understand was that Malcolm was part of a whole, that he was part of a particular experience, part of a tradition, part of a family that resisted the corner into which America tried to push them. He continued by recounting the night that he witnessed his mother, Louise, stand up to the white men who threatened her while Earl was out of town. My mother, she was pregnant with Malcolm at the time, she stood there and just had no fear I never saw anybody who could tell you off so intelligently and never use a word of profanity, never cussed. When she got through, you felt like you'd been beaten up. Wilfred gave credit to Louise for her children's bravery in the face of injustice and calm in the face of chaos. He explained how her lessons from that particular night and beyond taught each of her children to walk with pride. The, same, the story is the same of Bernice Baldwin and her son, James. At one school, it was said that he was the best writer of everyone in the building, including the adults, and it was clear to them where he got his talents. Gertrude Ayer, the principal of his first school on 128th Street between 5th and Madison Avenues, attributed James's excellence to his mother. I remember, too, his mother above all mothers. She had the gift of using language beautifully. Her notes and letters, written to explain her son's absences, were admired by teachers and by me. This talent transmitted through her is surely the basis of James's success. It is said that he too writes like an angel, albeit an avenging one. As Christine King Ferris, the eldest sister of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once recalled, Every now and then I have to chuckle as I realize there are people who actually believe Martin just appeared. They think he simply happened, that he appeared fully formed, without context, ready to change the world. Take it from his big sister, that's simply not the case. We are the products of a long line of activists and ministers. We come from a family of incredible men and women who served as leaders in their time and place long before Martin was ever thought of. What Anna Tubbs would like all of us to remember by reading her book is that because of who Alberta, Berdice, and Louise were, the world was changed forever. Their lives did not begin with motherhood. On the contrary, long before their sons were even thoughts in their minds, each woman had her own passions, dreams, and identity. Each woman was already living an incredible life that her children would one day follow. Their identities as young black girls in Georgia, Granada, and Maryland influenced the ways in which they would approach motherhood. Their exposure to racism and sexist violence from the moment they were born would inform the lessons they taught their children. 
Their intellect and creativity led to fostering such qualities in their homes. The relationships they witnessed in their parents and grandparents would inspire their own approaches to marriage and child rearing. Highlighting their roles as mothers does not erase their identities as independent women. Instead, these identities informed their ability to raise independent children who would go on to inspire the world for years to come. So it is in honor of Alberta, Berdice, and Louise on this MLK weekend that we turn back to the wedding in Cana and examine the story of the person who raised Jesus to become Jesus. The text is often called the wedding at Cana, but I suggest that a more accurate title might be Jesus' first near-death experience. Let's picture it. Not wanting to cause a scene, not wanting to embarrass the hosts, the mother of Jesus pulls him away from his friends, away from the music and the dancing, away from the servants who were working hard to hide their growing panic as countless wedding guests swirled obliviously around them. She covered her mouth with her hand and quietly whispered to her son, they have no wine. Implied in this four-word sentence is, I know you can take care of this. And Jesus, apparently having lost his mind, sasses his mother. Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Can you imagine the look that Mary gave her smart mouth kid after that comment? I mean, you know that's what happened. Even if the text moves on really quickly, the next verse is Mary giving instructions to the servants, do whatever he tells you. But in that space between verses 4 and 5, Jesus' very life hangs in the balance. Mary gave him the look. Capital T, capital L something that shook his soul a little and made it clear to him that his mother brought him into this world and she could take him out of it. From my understanding, a lot of parenting is just staring at your child until they act right. And Mary's stare was so good that, well, Jesus doesn't even argue when Mary starts instructing the servants to do whatever he tells them. Jesus straightened up, as my mother would say. The next thing we know, Jesus does not simply refill a few glasses, but six water jars, each 20 to 30 gallons, all of which became filled to the brim with the best wine. In some ways, this story is yet more proof that, yes, Mary really knew something. She definitely knew Jesus could make a difference here. She saw not just that he could meet a need, but that he should. That he should set aside whatever hesitation, whatever excuse, whatever he had been telling himself and just get on with it. 
Maybe, maybe Jesus wasn't sure he was qualified, or maybe he was scared. Maybe Jesus wanted more assurance of a positive outcome, assured success, or a sign that this was, in fact, the path he was to walk. But Mary's prompt is something akin to the knowing is in the doing. So to get Jesus to roll up his sleeves and do the work, Mary rolls up her own sleeves, sharpens her elbow a bit, and plants it squarely in his ribs. Get on with it. Neither of us are getting any younger. But more than that, this is a story of when things pivot for Jesus. Yes, of course, Jesus starts performing miracles left and right, left and right after this one. But maybe it's not because he suddenly found his footing. Perhaps it was because he started minding his mama, which is to say that Jesus noticed Mary noticing In the ancient world, theologian Debbie Thomas explains, wedding feasts lasted for days, and it was the host's sacred responsibility to provide abundant food and drink for the duration of the festivities. To run out of wine early was a dishonor and a disgrace, a breach of hospitality that the guests would remember for years to come. We can easily imagine how the servants of the house must have gone limp with fear, this is the kind of miscalculation that could cost them their jobs or worse. We have no idea what Mary's connection is to the bride and groom. All we know is that she was one wedding guest among many. But even in the midst of celebration and distraction, she notices. She notices need. She sees what's amiss. She perceives the high likelihood of scandal and humiliation brewing beneath a seemingly glossy surface. If John's account is trustworthy, Mary notices and registers concern before Jesus does. They have no wine. It could have just as easily been They have no money. She has no cure. He has no friends. I have no strength. It is a line that I repeat daily in endless iterations for myself and for others. It's the line I cling to when I feel helpless, when I have nothing concrete to offer, when Christianity seems futile, when God feels a million miles away. It's also the line that insists against all odds in the mysterious power of telling God the truth in prayer. Sometimes it's the only thing I know to say There is a need here. Everything is not okay. We're in trouble. There is no wine. Mary's noticing makes all the difference. It is, by this account, the first step in working a miracle. From this point on, Jesus notices all kinds of things that others overlook, which then allows him to respond. We see it 
Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. People have long been asking, what would Jesus do? But that's only because he started asking, what would mama notice? So that's where we've got a start. What, what would Mary notice? Chronic illness? Physical pain? Financial trouble? Systemic injustice? They have no wine. Regardless of how we rewrite Mary's line to match our circumstances, we have to first notice. And once we see it, we can imagine Mary giving us the look. Eyebrows raised, chin lifted, head tilted. What are you waiting on? If it's a sign, here it is. You have permission to work a miracle. Let's see what happens. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.